Howdy, howdy, everybody. This is episode number 17 of the Five Figures Podcast. I'm Callum, your intrepid host. Look at that. I, I even did the appropriate research to figure out which episode this was. Because usually, I have no fucking clue when I start recording. Anyway, we're just coming off of, uh, you know, what you're doing kind of fight night event at the Apex. It was between Marina Rodriguez and Amanda Lemosh in the main event. And then you had a bunch of other stuff on it. Neil Magny got a cool win over Daniel Rodriguez. Derek Minna basically sold James... Not sold James Krause. Gave James Krause a house. And, uh, yeah, let's just get into the whole shebang. I mean, realistically, most of this... this episode is probably going to be concerned with UFC 281, which is coming up this weekend at Madison Square Garden. The main event is Israel Adesanya versus Alex Pereira. It's going to be a banger. Maybe. It might actually not be a banger. We're going to talk about that now. It's probably not going to be a banger. It's probably going to be quite dull. But there are some really great fights on it. Dan Hooker versus Claudio Puelas. Um, Frankie Edgar might get brained by Chris Gutierrez. We'll see. We'll see. And, you know, Dustin Poirier and Michael Chandler are going to have a banger. And Carlos, Carlos Ulberg's probably going to get upset by Nikolai Nagamoreno. Oh, my God, I just completely butchered his name there. But, yeah, you know, we'll talk about that in due course, though. That, that That's for later on in the episode. Let's quickly recap this. I mean, I wouldn't call it a shit-tier event, but it's one of those events, you know? They're very common nowadays. UFC fight night events where you just go... That that happened. It was certainly a night of fights, I guess. And, okay, cool, whatever. But yeah, let's start with the main event. You keep wondering, how does Amanda Lemos, how has she had two back-to-back headlining fights? And then, you remember, she fights in the strawweight division, and it is a fucking piss-poor division. Anything except for... Oh, naturally, no, sorry. I was I was mistaking strawweight with flyweight for a half second there. No, strawweight's not completely dead. Strawweight has a bunch of really good fighters, admittedly. But, still, it, it doesn't have a lot of... It doesn't have a, a really big surplus of up-and-comers. A lot of the established top-tier competitors have been established for quite a while. It's similar in that sense to, you know, some of lightweight. You know how lightweight at the at the top tier of lightweight, you'll find that a lot of those fighters are just kind of holding on to their rankings by virtue of not fighting down in the rankings. They're not giving up-and-comers the opportunity to advance in the rankings. You find that with Dustin Poirier, your Michael Chandler's, your Justin Gaethje's, Guys who haven't fought outside the top five for years and probably should at this point because there are guys who deserve an opportunity to, you know, fight their way into that position, into a place where they can potentially contest for the title relatively soon. Anyway, yeah, that, that's kind of similar to the strawweight division, albeit Marina Rodriguez sort of did that herself recently. She got that victory over Yan Zhao Nan, UFC 272, and also she had that main event against Mackenzie Dern a little while ago, back a little while ago, actually. Holy shit, that was over a year ago. That's crazy. Time passes. Uh, yeah, I just didn't think it had been a year since that goddamn fight, but there you go. 
yeah, so she had a she had a five round decision versus Mackenzie Dern a year ago, and she had that split decision over Yan Zhao Nan back in March of this year, and so she's positioned herself. Uh, I think she came into this fight ranked number three in the division, and she was fighting number seven Amanda Lemos, and Lemos came in. This is oh, actually sorry, she'd beaten Michelle Waterson. I completely forgot about that fight. But yes, she she was coming off of the victory over Michelle Waterson. Prior to that, she had that that headlining slot versus Jessica Andrade, and then she got standing head and arm choked, which is not ideal. And I, the, I'm sure the UFC saw that and went, "Well, yes, but that's Jessica Andrade. We like Jessica Andrade. We'll still we'll still keep Amanda Lemos in this kind of, you know, we'll keep her." in mind when we're trying to put together some decent uh, matchups and when we're trying to put together a shit-tier fucking fight night card. Uh, admittedly, uh, I will admit, this card was initially meant to be headlined by Bryce Mitchell and Mosvar Hevluev, which would have been a bit of a banger. So cool, you know. I respect that this wasn't the initial plan, but come on, guys. Still. But yeah, you know. Amanda Lemos, you sometimes forget that she's a really, really good fighter, and then, you know, I, I remember, I remembered watching this fight, what I saw in her when we saw her fight Livia Renato Souza back in March of last year, she just has gorgeous jab, brilliant outside low kick, and a mean, simultaneous counter overhand right, what more can you ask for, realistically, in, in the strawweight division, where you don't see a whole lot of finishes, I mean, fuck it, that, that's enough for me, I'll take that, you know, yeah, she's, yeah, this was a weird fight, because at the end of the first round, Marina Rodriguez, I mean, I I believe Lemos was the one who went for the takedown, Rodriguez just ended up on top, and it was like, literally, 15 seconds, there was very little consolidation, like, it was just kind of 15 seconds at the end of the round. Like, yes, it was very clear Marina Rodriguez did end up on the top in the dominant position, but, you know, didn't really get much offense off before the round concluded. And there had been very little volume up to that point in the fight. So Daniel Cormier on commentary goes, well, it's very clear now that Marina Rodriguez just swung the round in her favor and just and just won the round. And I'm just sitting there watching going, I don't know if I saw any shot that Marina Rodriguez landed throughout the course of that round, which justifies her being given the round, when, yes, Amanda Lemos threw very little herself, but she landed a mean overhand right at one point. She landed a really nice switch kick to the body at one point. I don't know, man. And there was some really nice outside low kicking from Lemos as well. Some inside low kicking as well with the lead leg. Rodriguez was landing her own kicks. But I think there was clear power differential. And I really, really don't think the final 15 seconds where Rodriguez was in top control negate the fact that Amanda Lemos was landing the harder shots. Of course, it's a very subjective thing to be saying that. But I don't know. Rewatch the round and tell me that the shots that Amanda Lemos lands are not more significant than what Marina Rodriguez lands. And additionally, if we're going to play this game of, well, Marina Rodriguez got the dominant position at the conclusion of the round, therefore she wins the rest of the round because it was close enough. You know, if, we, if we're going to value position that much, then fuck it. We, you got to take into account, 
cage position. If you're really going to play that fucking points game, then Amanda Lemosh had control of the cage the majority of that first round. She had the center of the octagon, and Marina Rodriguez wasn't able to take back the second of the the center of the octagon consistently. So if you want to play the position game, I think it counters each. It, it sort of balances out, cancels each other out, and oh yeah, ultimately I think Amanda Lemos won that round. And then it goes to the fucking Twitter comments after the end of the second round, the second round of which, you know, Amanda Lemos very clearly won. She spent the vast majority of the round in top or on the back, and then she ended up in half guard on top. But yeah, it gets to the end of the round, and then all the Twitter comments that they display on screen are like, oh yeah, it's probably Amanda Lemos 1919, or not Amanda Lemos, it's 1919 after two rounds. You know, very close first round though. I'm like, are you are you guys fucking dumb? Did you just listen to Daniel Cormier and go, eh, good enough? Nah, motherfuckers. It's very clear to me that Amanda Lemos was landing the harder shots in that first round, was landing the better shots in that first round. Her jab was just so crisp, so crisp. Yes, she just, she throws really nice shots. Her jab is really fucking gorgeous. Yeah. Anyway, fight was ended in the third round. Amanda Lemos landed a simultaneous counter overhand right. Who'd have thunk it? It's not like that's one of the, the only things she does. Not that that's a bad thing. I think you can be a specialist and it can be really cool. In this case, it was really cool because it was a really nice land. I'm just saying, you know. Marina Rodriguez, what are we doing, my G? You know? Um, ultimately, decent little fight. Amanda Lemos looked good. Can't wait to see her fight. More people in the top five. Hopefully not get standing arm triangled by Jessica Andrade in the first round. Next time she she fights up. Uh, yes, this was a very impressive performance. I'm uh, I'm just excited to see her. Because uh, I know she's going to challenge for a title at some point. Because, you know, you just watch her technique. Watch the way she outside low kicks. Watch how much power she injects into so many of her shots. And, you know, she's a pretty strong grappler. I mean, she demonstrated, you know, just her general awareness in the clinch. Got onto the cage against Rodriguez. And, you know, she was in a position where Rodriguez was kind of framing across the face. And Amanda was able to get underneath the the elbow of that frame, just pop it over the top, and then hit a trip as she's stepping around, and, and that's where she was able to start attacking the back from. And it was just really cool. It was really good. So yeah, I, I, she's going to be challenging for a title at some point. Uh, it's just who's she going to be fighting for that title. We'll see. So yes, that was cool. What else was on this card of note? There was Neil Magny defeating Daniel Rodriguez, which is a pretty good fight, except for the fact that, you know, Neil Magny... I, You know, there are so many times where Dean Thomas gets on commentary, they bring him in to be the, the expert analysis, the coach, and he just says the most obvious shit, and you're like, just shut the fuck up, Dean. But every now and again, you know, I, I feel like I mention this every two or three episodes, every now and again, Dean Thomas says something really good. And yeah, he said something that was kind of obvious, but also, I think, really got to the core of the issue for Neil Magny throughout the course of that second round, where he very clearly lost. And that's just, man just walks straight back. He was walking straight back onto the cage, and Daniel was peppering the body and then the head with the straight left. I mean, it's Daniel Rodriguez. That's what he does. He's a southpaw, and he really favors that left side. He also has a really good jab as well, yes, which we saw against Lee Jing Liang. 
Um, much to the chagrin of, of many who thought, you know, Daniel Rodriguez didn't do enough in that fight because he was only jabbing. But, you know, in, mo- in most of his fights, he utilizes that left side predominantly. And, yeah, if you back yourself onto the cage like Neil Magny did on multiple occasions, and, and I do say back yourself onto the cage because, yes, there are times when Daniel Rodriguez pushed the point and made sure he got in Magny's face, forced him to the cage. That, that's a whole nother, that's a different thing. There were also a lot of times when they were getting into the pocket, they were getting into clinching range, and Rodriguez would literally just push Magny away. He would just push him onto the fence. You know, so I'm not talking about those instances necessarily, because in those instances, it's D-Rod doing it. But there were just a lot of instances as well where Neil Magny was walking directly backwards in a straight line, and what do you know? I have no more room to move back because there's a fucking cage here. We fight in a cage. Yeah, it was a bit irritating to watch that consistently happen, but, you know, in terms of the grappling, I thought Neil Magny looked great, looked strong in the clinch. Oh, my God. Just getting over whizzes, man. Watch Neil Magny if you want to really watch someone who's effective at shrugging under whizzes and shrugging under overhooks because Neil Magny is exceptionally good at it and he got to the back off of those shrugs a couple of times in this fight and then the finish was just really impressive from Magny as well he got a Das choke in the kind of dying minutes of the third round in in a round that you know he got a very timely takedown about three minutes left three and a half minutes left or something like that he got a takedown, so it put him in good stead for the rest of the round. But, yeah, he, he was losing the round up to that point. Even even though it was, you know, only the early minutes into the round, he was still losing the round up to that point. So the fact that he was able to get that takedown, and then he was able to turn that, you know, goes to the front headlock with D-Rod, and immediately starts looking for the Dars. Oh, it was just, uh, it was cool. It was good. You love to see it. You really do. And then talking about, you know, front headlock work, Tagir Ulanbekov was able to get a really sick guillotine on Nate Maness, who went down to fucking flyweight. We were watching this all week on Reddit. Maness and his team were putting photos on the MMA subreddit, like, you know, we're going to the weigh-ins now. And everyone in the comments are like, why the fuck are you moving down a weight class? I Look, okay, I understand his previous contest... In his previous contest, got decision by Uman Magomedov. Yeah, no, fair enough. He felt pretty powerless in that contest. Goes, well, I'll move down to flyweight because I'm going to have more strength. You know, I'm going to... I'm going to be able to shrug off takedowns against these, these wrestlers because I'm just going to be bigger than them. And initially, it kind of felt like that. You know, there were a few exchanges where... It just felt like he was the bigger guy in the cage. But then, I don't know, Tagir just got in on him and got him down pretty pretty bloody easily. Lifted up, was a single leg on the cage, and it became a bit of a meme on the MMA subreddit. It got a pretty highly upvoted highlight, this fight did, where, yes, Tagir was on the single leg and was trying to kind of lift Nate and pull back to get the takedown, and Maness just dragged his rear leg, his standing leg, on the ground. Looked like, well, in, you know, 
to quote the post that was put on the MMA subreddit, looked like he was lagging. And then, yeah, Tagir from there was able to complete the takedown. Yeah, you know, just kind of dominated from there, and then it ended up in the front headlock. Yeah, he got a guillotine, got a really oh, high elbow guillotine. Looked mental. Guillotines are just always like, damn. You know, high high elbow guillotines in particular are always like, Jesus Christ, you trying to rip that man's fucking head off? Like, God damn it. So yeah, that was that was cool. Shout out to Gear Ulanbekov. What does that put him in terms of the UFC now? Oh yeah, he had that most recent loss to Tim Elliott. Was that I can't remember that whether that was a contested decision. I, I can't really remember, unfortunately. But yes, he's got some decent wins in the UFC now. Bruno Gustavo da Silva. Eh. But then there's the Alan Nasser Cemento win. That was a split decision win, but you know. I value Alan Nasser Cemento. Eh, I cannot pronounce his name right now. So yes, that was that's a good win by Tagir, and hopefully it's a message to Nate Maness. Yes, you got you got fucked up by Namagomedov. It happens, dude. A lot of people have been fucked up by Namagomedov. Just move on and go back to bantamweight, bro. This ain't your fucking weight class, okay? You looked. He looked like he was about to fucking keel over and die. He looked terrible, okay? And then there was Shailan Nandunbeki. Ooh. I apologize. I'm just going to say Shailan from here because that's also butchering the pronunciation of his name, but it's not as bad as the fucking meat cleaver that I just took to his last name. So, you know, Shailan of this, or Shailan. Shailan defeated Derek Minner, and it was a whole big thing because it comes out after the fight some people are analysing the betting lines for this contest. And wow, all of a sudden, it really spikes, like, just as the fight starts. Why is that? Well, Derek Minner becomes a massive underdog just all of a sudden. And, well, it, we find out very quickly into the fight that Derek Minner is compromised in some way, shape, or form because he throws a left body kick, and it seems to kind of, you know, his toes seem to land, so you initially think, oh, maybe maybe his toes the issue, maybe he just hurt his toes there, he jarred his toes on the elbow or something, but it seemed to be a knee issue, and of course, he throws the left leg, he throws that same body kick immediately after it's very clear that he hurt his knee in some way, shape, or form, so, you know, I don't I don't even know what to make of that necessarily. It's just some wild shit. But yeah. And then comes out that Derek Minna is, well, I mean, what's it called? James Krause. Has worked with James, Kra- James Krause or currently works with James Krause? Is in his corner? I can't recall. But yes, Derek Minna is, you know, is around and about James Krause. And James Krause, you know, hosts a podcast that's all about gambling and betting on fights, talks a lot about his approach to betting on fights, and there have been a few instances recently where people have kind of thrown accusations saying that, you know, Krauss will sometimes bet against his fighters if he knows that they're compromised going into a contest, and there hasn't really been much substantiative, you know, uh, what's the word? Evidence 
substantiated evidence is the word that I'm actually looking for. But this feels more concrete. This feels more damning, honestly. It's very interesting to see someone spike that much in terms of their odds so rapidly and have their, their opponent drop down, like become that big of a favorite as the fight begins. So, you know, we can't necessarily call foul play because we don't actually know what the fuck happened. We don't know... We don't know if that's actually what occurred. There has, I believe an investigation has been launched. As of the time of recording, the UFC have said, we're going to be investigating this. And honestly, you know, there, there are a lot of instances where I think a fighting, or not a fighting, a sporting organization, just more generally, a sporting organization, they, they come out and they go, we'll investigate this, all right. Particularly nowadays where... There are accusations of harassment, you know, made by staff against players, for example. And the league in question or the organization in question might come out and publicly say, we're going to investigate this incident to see if there's any validity to the accusations being levied against so-and-so. And And their, their investigation amounts to very little and they, it's basically just a, an exercise in PR management, all right? But in this case, I feel like an investigation made by the UFC into this incident would be quite, you know, genuine because they're making a very big push into the gambling world. I mean, every single fight is presented with little odd, odd factors, you watch the broadcasts, and when they're introducing the fighters, they have things like, you know, this fighter is younger than their opponent. I, I believe this happened, the the Miranda Maverick-Shana Young fight that was uh, capping off the prelim card. In the introductions, one of the fighters had a little graphic next to her name that said, oh yes, younger fighters win 63% of the time. And like that specific detail is sponsored by a gambling company, is sponsored by a betting company. And you're like, wow, Jesus Christ, you guys are really trying as hard as you possibly can to align yourself, align yourselves with these companies, with this practice, which, you know, a lot of people recognize as being an issue. So, you know, all right, whatever. But it, it does give me confidence that they'll go, well, we, we do not want people questioning the legitimacy of, you know, of gambling in this sport. We don't want people to be convinced it's rigged. We want people to believe that they have a real shot because then they put more money into the practice. So maybe they might actually give it a real red hot look. We'll see. We'll see. Anyway. Moving on, Grant Dawson put on a great performance against Mark Madsen, the Olympian who got out-wrestled by Grant Dawson, who's been looking great recently. I mean, he had a sensational victory recently against Jared Gordon, who I still place in very high esteem, who will be fighting Paddy Pimblett soon, so he'll actually, he'll get his rub, man. He'll get some some shit. People may actually start putting some respect on Jared Gordon's name. That's going to be a really good fight. I'm very excited for that one. But yeah, had a great performance against Jared Gordon, uh, a very back-and-forth fight that Grant was able to come up on top of with the with the rear naked choke in the third round. And, you know, this fight 
wasn't the same thing. In that Gordon fight, very back and forth. This fight, no, no, no. Grant Dawson was in control pretty much the entire time. Landing some great outside low kicks, low calf kicks, and controlled the back pretty much the entirety of the first round. Had, you know, that body triangle locked in. Yeah, Mark Manson couldn't really do shit. Yeah, it was kind of, you know, it was it wasn't dull. It was impressive, but yeah, that was that. And the whole time you're thinking to yourself, wow, this is really the end of Mark Madsen's any and all hype that he had at any point. He is now 38 years of age as of the 23rd of September this year. And you just, I mean, he was already struggling with Clay Guida back in August of last year. And then in the Pichel fight earlier this year, I didn't think he looked that great. So, you know, I think that that puts an end to things. He was undefeated, but it felt like a very inauthentic undefeated. You know, he had some good wins. He had that win against Austin Hubbard. That's cool, but, you know, uh, it just feels like all the hype has completely dissipated for Mark Madsen, and that's probably the end for him in terms of, you know, in terms of talking about him in, like, the ranked conversation for Lightweight. Like, I don't think he'll ever be getting ranked after that performance. And Grant Dawson's continuing to look good, and he's moved to ATT, and he's having success. So good job to Grant Dawson, because, yeah, I'm I'm impressed with his continued development. So cool. Other things on this this card, Mario Batista beat the absolute shit out of Benito Lopez. That was cool. That was interesting. Great job by Mario Batista. Doing a great job of switching things up. He would back Lopez up to the cage, and he was coming in from Southpaw, and then he would switch into Orthodox and go with that right hook to the body and then left hook up top. I don't know, just really good work mixing things up, going up and down, you know, really punishing the body, particularly when he had Lopez on the cage. He ended things with a reverse triangle. Armbar, it was really fucking dope, and Lopez was really pissed off at the end of the fight because he really didn't do much in this fight, unfortunately for him. But yeah, I I don't believe he had fought in, he hadn't fought in ages, something like that. Yeah, his last performance, his last fight was against Vince Morales back in July of 2019. That was on the Durandamy Aspen Lad card. Y'all remember that shit? I I forgot, I didn't realize that that was before the pandemic. That's crazy to me. Yeah, it feels feels an age ago. And yet, it doesn't feel like any time has passed. Anyway, you know, Benito Lopez hasn't fought in fucking ages. And Mario Batista came out and was just switching stances in his face from the get-go. And, you know, ended up uh, ended up securing the win, Batista did. Poliana Viana was able to take out Jin Frey really quick. Cool. I like Poliana Viana. Was a good little combination to end things. Yeah, it was 47 seconds. I don't know. There's not much more to comment on. But it was kind of awkward because Jin Frey got knocked out and then she popped back up pretty soon after and Poliana Viana just kissed her on the forehead while this concussed woman was just standing there being held by the referee. You're like, this is awkward and weird, and I don't like it. I just don't like when people get in their opponent's faces after the after a loss at all. You know, it's just awkward. Unless the loser comes over to the winner and, you know, 
tries to give them congratulations and, you know, be a good sport about it. Just let them do their fucking thing because they've either been knocked out, submitted, or they've just lost a close decision or they've lost a decision to some extent. And, you know, losing is not fucking fun. So, I don't know, just let them do their own thing. It was a bit weird. It was a bit awkward. And then Johnny Munoz Jr. was able to get a decision over Shalinian. Ludwig Shalinian. And it was interesting. Shalinian, I was watching this and I was thinking to myself, you know, honestly, I could see him giving a lot of people issues because I think he does have decent head movement. He was avoiding, particularly in the first round, go back and rewatch the first round. Johnny Munoz barely landed his jab. Like, if he was just throwing a solo jab, no, nah, none of them were landing. Shalinian's head movement was pretty damn solid. It's just that he very rarely puts counters behind it, which irritates the shit out of me. I was watching this whole fight just going, bro, bro, just just throw a counter left hook when Munoz throws a jab, because it's very clear that you have the reactive speed to avoid these shots, but you're just not doing anything. You're not actually providing any offense. It, you're just avoiding shots, and ultimately the judges are looking at that and they're going, the only thing they're thinking to themselves is, well, you aren't doing anything except move your head around, dodging shit. But you, you, you're not actually providing any offense yourself. So you'll probably end up fucking losing the round just by virtue of, even if you avoid every single punch, the judges are in different parts of the octagon. One judge, or two judges might look at a punch and go, well, that jab definitely didn't land. They might correctly, st- they might correctly figure that shot didn't land, but... One judge might be in a position where they can't see the punch properly. They can't see both guys properly. And they see your head snap back and they think, oh, the jab must have landed. That's why his head snapped back. When in reality, you just moved your head back really fast because you're a really fucking good striker and you got great head movement. You know? So if you just do nothing offensively and just avoid shots the entire time, you're still probably going to lose because... Judges are going to see different things, and they're probably going to think some of those shots did in fact land. It happens on the broadcast all the time. Us people at home think shots landed, and then you rewatch it in slow motion, and you go, oh, no, that didn't land at all. You know, bounced it off the shoulder, bounced it off the gloves, you know, bounced it off the elbow. Yeah, so that was kind of pissing me off. And additionally, Shaolinian just moves... He like he pulls back directly at the hips. So Johnny Munoz, when he was jabbing, wasn't landing shit. But then Johnny figured out pretty early on, oh, if I just throw the one-two and then follow up with a jab behind that, kind of throw that like power jab Canelo style, then, you know, even he wasn't throwing it. No, it wasn't pretty because he was throwing the jab cross and then he would get very square in his stance and with his feet and then he would throw it. So like if if. Shalinian actually threw a counter shot after that one-two as Munoz was trying to step in for that follow-up jab. Munoz was probably ending up on the fucking ground. But the thing was, Shalinian is just, he's moving back. He's trying to avoid the shots because that is so much of his game. So much of his game is just pulling back at the waist, pulling back in a straight line, Neil Magny style, and trying to avoid shots that way. And when he would do that, Munoz would catch him with that kind of longer, rangier final jab. And yeah, landed a lot of really good shots that way. It wasn't the prettiest, but it was effective. So good job, Johnny Munoz, for figuring that the fuck out. There was also some 
cool grappling exchanges in the third round. It was nice. And then Jake Hadley was able to defeat Carlos Candelario. That was by a triangle. But Jake Hadley, it was interesting on the feet. Carlos, man, oh, God, he's an awkward striker to watch. This dude is really awkward. The way that he holds his his arms. He kind of reminds me of Brandon Moreno because sometimes Brandon Moreno will bring his elbows up really high. Not, not just in like a typical high guard. It's not like he's always shelling up. But just like when he's holding his hands by his chin. He brings his elbows up. He flares them up quite a bit. It's kind of weird to watch. I don't, I don't know how to describe it. I think you've got to watch it to know what I'm talking about. But yeah, both southpaws. Both came out with volume as their their offense, as their offensive mode. And I thought... You know, we saw some interesting things. I haven't watched much of Jake Hadley. I liked the fact that he was pulling up, pulling off that Dustin Poirier Philly shell, that adjusted mixed martial arts Philly shell where you flare the elbow out and towards your opponent. And so if they jab at you and you're you might you might try and catch it on the end of your your elbow, which really fucking hurts a fist. You know, punching an elbow isn't fun because it's a very hard part of the body. So yeah, Jake was throwing up that Dustin Poirier Philly shell, and Carlos was not doing too poorly getting around it. He was landing some good body shots, to be honest. But Jake Hadley kind of started taking over as the fight really worked its rhythm. He was throwing a really nice straight left to the body, which and, and left hooks to the body as well. Obviously, in Southpaw versus Orthodox, very difficult thing to land. If you're a Southpaw fighter, you will very rarely land a left hook to the body. Just because it's your rear hand and you have to extend really far with it. And when you're throwing a left hook to the body, you you have to yeah, you've got to really step in with it if it's your rear hand. And but if you know, if it's in a close stance matchup, it's southpaw versus southpaw or orthodox versus orthodox, you don't have to travel as far because the lead side of your opponent lines up with your rear hand. So it's not like, you know, an open stance matchup, my left hand is a southpaw, I want to connect with the body. Oh, well, the right side of his body, which is the side that aligns with my left hand, that's the side that's furthest away. So you've got to cover even more distance, you've got to, you've got to step in deeper if you want to land that shot, or you've got to back them up against the cage. Whereas close stance matchup, it's not as difficult because the lead side of your opponent's body is right in front of your rear hook. And that's what happened. Jake Hadley was landing some really nice left hooks to the body here against Candelario. and was, was having some good success with that. I thought his striking looked pretty decent. He really extends, like he turns his hip all the way over when he throws a kick. It, it Yeah, I don't know. And Carlos Candelario, I mentioned Brandon Moreno actually, and Carlos Candelario does the well, the Brandon Moreno thing of stepping into step-up uh, body kicks, you know, with his lead leg. Did that very effectively, threw that to the body quite effectively a number of times here, so that's cool. But then, you know, Jake Hadley was able to get this fight at the ground and was able to get a triangle. Yeah, there was a period there where I thought he was just basically going to hold on to the triangle for the rest of the round just to control posture and land elbows because he was landing a lot of elbows while whilst Candelario was in his guard. And then he just... Uh, what's it called? Then he just straightened up his knee and actually started compressing the triangle and bada-bing, bada-boom, he got the tap. And then, you know, there was a TKO via flying knee in the first fight of the night between... Tamar Tamariz, Vidal, and Ramona Pascual. 
So that was cool. Yeah. I don't know. Vidal didn't look that impressive to me before that shot. So, eh. But yeah, it was a decent little card. It was an eh kind of card. Oh my God, I've spoken for 36 minutes now. I apologize. Let's start talking about UFC 281 because there's some bangers on this card. There's Just quickly, we'll, we'll go down and just talk about all the fights that are probably going to be bangers. Carla Esparza versus Zhang Weili because Zhang Weili is probably going to ragdoll the shit out of Carla Esparza. I, I don't, honestly don't think we need to preview that fight that much because in my opinion, I think I, I do not know what the odds are for it. If you get decent odds on this fight, Sorry, I'm just opening up sports bet right now. If you have decent odds on this through whatever betting provider you utilize, then fucking jump on this shit. Wang Wang uh, Wei Li Zhang, Zhang Wei Li. What? It's very confusing how every single fucking outlet changes up the up the order of her names. I say Zhang Wei Li typically, but then sports bet has Wei Li Zhang. Okay, Zhang Wei Li is dollar twenty-seven on sports bet versus Carla Esparza being three dollars eighty-two. I don't know, man. I just don't think Carla Esparza has really any tools on the feet, and I think Zhang Wei Li is too fucking strong. I think Zhang Wei Li is gonna land that fucking classic thing she does. You know when she throws that kind of inside low kick and then misses with the inside low kick and then comes back with that side kick? Yeah, she's gonna land that a bunch. You can just—I fucking guarantee she's gonna land that a bunch. Yeah, I just, I think Carla's going to have to work, going to, she's going to have to back her up to the cage, and I'm concerned for her there, because I think Zhang Weili has a really good, she's got really good frames on the cage when she's defending takedowns, I, I honestly just envision Weili on the cage with, you know, back pressed up to the cage, because Carla's shot in on her. And Zhang is going to have an overhook, a really tight overhook on one side. It's going to be framing on the face and it's going to be landing elbows. Probably going to be looking to separate. And when upon that separation, she's going to look for the double collar ties and she's going to start jamming knees up the middle. And I just imagine it's not going to be a fun time for Carla. I really just, I struggle to see a range. I struggle to see a range where shit works out for her in this contest. It's a difficult fight for her to win basically. So yeah, I think Zhang Weili has kind of got a layup here. I don't think you're going to get what you got with Carla and Rose Namajunas, because that's just not Zhang fucking Weili, you know? Or at least it hasn't been recently. You know, yeah, she had some sort of slower-paced fights towards the beginning of her UFC career. You know, she had that decision against Danielle Taylor. You know, she had that... Uh, actually, the Tisha Torres fight was pretty fun as well. Like, that was that was a fun fight. So yeah, I she's had some slower fights, but I just cannot imagine that her pace will be that slow against Carla Esparza that it's going to allow Esparza to work the game that she worked in the Rose Number Units fight, which wasn't really a game, it was just kind of what was. So yes, I think Zhang Weili bodies the fuck out of her in this matchup. Yeah, that's just, that's all I'm thinking. What are, what are the more competitive matchups on this on this card well in the main event obviously you have Israel Adesanya taking on Alex Pereira Poetan and it's been a very quick ascendance for Mr. Pereira here Mr. Alex Pereira you know made it into or entered into mixed martial arts back in 2015 initially got submitted in the first no that was in the third round sorry of a jungle fight matchup in Sao Paulo since then he's, he's gone undefeated 
KO'd Marcelo Cruz in Jungle Fight. KO'd, Mar- KO'd Marcus Vinicius de Silveira in Jungle Fight. And then knocked out Thomas Powell in LFA. And then made to the UFC. He's, he's just been on the fast track. Because the UFC knew what they wanted to do with him from the get-go. They knew he's the last guy to beat Israel Adesanya in the kickboxing ring. And, and people want to suggest... like. People seem to forget Izzy's lost a couple of times in the ring. Like, he lost to Simon Marcus. He lost to... What's it called? Wilness. Uh, yeah, so he's lost a couple of times to various guys. But he's lost twice to Alex Pierre. Now, the first time was a decision that was quite contentious. <laughs> the kind of loss where you're like, oh, No, man, that was pretty close. I thought... Izzy probably did enough to win that matchup. Then they came back out, and then Alex Pierre was honestly, I think he was losing that fight against Izzy. And then yeah, he was able to land his his patented step in left hook, and knocked the absolute fuck out of Izzy. And you know we've so we've all seen the clip of Izzy just lying there dead on the ground. Uh, but yes, that was from the Pierre fight. It was very impressive, and yes. Alex has only had three fights in the UFC. He beat Andreas Michaladius back UFC 268. That was November. That was at Madison Square Garden last year, November 6, 2021. And he is already in a title fight. A year later, basically, nearly a year to the date later, he, at the exact same venue, he will be fighting Israel Adesanya for the championship. And in the interim between that UFC debut and now, he has beaten Bruno Silva in a fight that was honestly pretty interesting, you know, and a fight which I I thought he won, but he definitely didn't dominate, dominate the way that you kind of would expect him to. And then he knocked the absolute fuck out of Sean Strickland, a fight that was cherry-picked to, like, oh my god, it's the most cherry-picked fight you'll ever see in your life. And... Honestly, I can't really blame the UFC because they're looking at Israel and they're going, damn, he really doesn't have anyone else. Like, who the fuck do we match him up with in this division? You know? Because Sean Strickland fought Alex Pierre at UFC 276. That same event was when Izzy fought Jared Cannonier. So, you know, thinking about at the time, Paulo Costa had come off the loss to Marvin Vittori. He hadn't fought Luke Rockhold at that point. So he can't be matched up against Izzy next if Izzy gets through Jared Cannonier, which obviously, as we know now, he did. You know, Yoel Romero's fucked off and they weren't going to give him another title shot anyway. Robert Whittaker's already lost twice to Izzy, so, you know, th- that's difficult. He's got to win a couple more times before you can match them up a third time. You know, Marvin Vittori's already lost twice to him. That second time was pretty definitive. Pretty, pretty fucking definitive, and, you know, Marvin didn't demonstrate really enough, you know, didn't demonstrate enough fight IQ at any point in that fight to really need to justify a third fight, you know? You're running out of people to put against Izzy at middleweight. So, it makes sense. They were like, well, Alex Pierre has a fucking mean left hook, Okay. And honestly, one of the things that Izzy has struggled with most throughout the course of his UFC career and his mixed martial arts career more generally, or not mixed martial arts career, but his his combat sports career more generally is the left hook. 
And we already know that Piera... I mean, Piera's had success with him in kickboxing context, and the odds of Izzy actually shooting a takedown in this instance, not particularly high. I don't think he's going to feel as comfortable as he did against Brad Tavares, you know? Gets to the end of the first round, and he decides, you know, fuck it, I'm going to try an Imanari roll. That's not going to happen in this case. I'm not... What's the odds on that? Him trying to fucking Imanari roll on Alex Piera at the end of the first round. Very fucking unlikely, okay? That's not happening. So yes, in all likelihood, it's going to be a stand-up battle between the two, and we already know that they are very competitive in the stand-up. So, you know, I'm not too concerned about the fact that they cherry-picked Sean Strickland, the guy who leans back at the waist every single time he jabs or has anything thrown at him, and is therefore... You know, his chin's on a fucking silver platter for the left hook. It was very clear what they were trying to do with that matchup, and that's how it it played out. Sean Strickland was reaching for the lead hand of Piera and ended up getting brained by a beautiful left hook around the guard. So yes, now we end up with this fight. And, you know, that that's what Piera does. He left hooks, and he has a really fucking mean left hook. And I mentioned just earlier, yeah... Israel Adesanya has had some issues with the left hook. And I mean that. Like, go back and watch my video, which recently got copyright flagged for music, which is fucking bullshit because it's made by my friend Scott. My friend Scott, uh, I got permission from him directly to use his music, but uh, whichever company he uploads shit to Spotify and the various streaming services with, has copyright claimed the music in my video on Israel Adesanya and Jan Blahovich, their fight. So, fuck that company. I think it's Repost Network. Fuck those hoes. Fuck them bitches. Okay? Anyway, yes. Go back and watch that video because, don't give it too many views because they get, Repost Network gets all the, the ad revenue. But that's beside the point. Yeah. Go back and watch that video, because we talk quite extensively about the fact that when Izzy switches southpaw, pretty much all of his offense comes off of the left side. So he'll throw left, you know, roundhouse kicks to the body and the head, and he'll throw lots of push kicks down the middle with that left that left leg, and he'll also throw the straight left. He doesn't really throw the jab, though. That's the thing. He doesn't throw the jab, or he doesn't throw the lead hook, the right hook, out of southpaw, pretty much at all. He elects to almost exclusively use the left hand and the left kicks. And a lot of guys have kind of realized this, and when he switches southpaw, they they exploit it. Because as we saw against Islam Makashev and, what's his name, Charles Oliveira very recently, you know, southpaw orthodox matchup, you know, the the lead hook over the top can be a very devastating weapon against someone who's crashing forward into an open stance matchup because you can go over the top of their lead hand. You can bring it over the top if you time the counter correctly. And that's exactly what Jan Blahovic did. You know, Izzy's throwing the straight left down the middle, trying to land that shot, and he kind of falls forward into a square stance off of that straight left, and Jan's just coming over the top of the left hook and popping his head every single time he does so. So you watch that, and you're like, ooh, Izzy. Quick word of advice. Please don't go southpaw in this matchup, because that's inevitably going to happen. He does it all the fucking time. He throws the straight left and falls forward into a square stance, and then he'll throw the right hook after that. And often, it just doesn't... It doesn't really land. It doesn't really land with any authority. 
he has had some really good offense out of Southpaw with the left kicks, you know, and and in the Robert Whitaker rematch in the first round, he did hurt Rob with a straight left down the middle. But it's not a consistent, reliable weapon, like a lot of his weapons out of Orthodox. Out of Orthodox, you know, he has the jab and he pairs his, his lead jab with the outside low kick. You know, he has... He has the hip feint into the straight right off of that. Obviously, he has the question mark kick, which he also throws out a southpaw because he throws it with his right leg predominantly. So, yeah, I feel like there's a more... There's a more consistent and a more reliable set of weapons that he utilizes out of orthodox. And additionally, he has the counter left hook that he himself can use on guys. I mean, we saw that against... Paulo Costa. In fact, there's a lot of things you you look at the Paulo Costa fight and you go, look, just do that shit, Izzy. Because in that fight, Izzy didn't really go southpaw at all, except when he was pushed up against the fence and he kind of had to level out his stance so that he could he could utilize his lateral movement. He could get off the cage because you don't want to be on the cage against Paulo Costa. So those were the few times that he went southpaw. But he spent pretty much the entire fight in orthodox because it gave him access to you know the oblique kick to the lead leg. It allowed him to utilize his jab really effectively because, like I said, it doesn't really jab out of southpaw and allowed him to counter the jab of Paulo with his left hook. And that's how he knocked him down. And that's what led to the finish. So, yeah. I think you look at that fight and you go, yeah, don't don't go southpaw in this matchup, Izzy. Don't do that because that probably won't work for you. But yes, uh, I think ultimately, you know, if my bet's going to be on anyone. It's probably going to be on Israel Adesanya just because he has more consistent weapons, you know, his outside low kicking is really good, I mean, Pierre is a difficult guy because he stands incredibly square, you know, he's, a lot of lead hookers stand, lead hookers, that, that, it's a weird term, but, but guys who have really well-renowned left hooks, they, they don't stand as square as Pierre does because, you know, he doesn't, you, you don't get the most talk on it, but, he he stands very square and he kind of he throws it in a weird way that that does generate a lot of power though and you know cuz he, because he's so square he can really turn his hip over into it and he can get a really nice arc on the shot he can get around guards very effectively because of how square his stance is it doesn't mean that guys can kick him uh and kick his lead leg but he's also pretty decent at checking kicks as well and he, he pulls back at the waist very effectively to, you know, to avoid body kicks and high kicks. So, I think this will be a very interesting fight. I Look, I don't know. I said at the beginning of the episode, this is probably going to be a bit of a shit tier fight. It's probably going to be a, a bit of a staring match. But having watched their, their previous two fights, I just, I don't think it's going to be a staring match realistically. I think it will actually be pretty damn entertaining. I think Alex Piero will stay in Izzy's face and I think Izzy will be constantly throwing. And we know that he can throw constantly because, I mean, there have been a lot of fights where he's been forced to throw in significant volume. I imagine that this fight will probably look a lot like Izzy's kickboxing matchup with with Jason Wilness, honestly, because so much of Wilness's game in that matchup was the the left hook and was the outside low kick and was backing Izzy onto the ropes and containing him on the ropes, forcing Izzy to throw combination as he's getting off the the perimeter of the 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 ring. 
So I, I think you'll probably see a lot of that. You'll probably see a lot more left hooking out of Izzy as well, trying to get off of the cage. I think you're also going to see a lot of high kicking out of Izzy. And yes, if he does go southpaw, I presume it won't be for extended periods of time. I presume it will probably be just to land the left body and left high kicks. And then he'll probably switch right back because I... You know, if if he's in southpaw, start... And you're an Izzy fan, that is, of course. If you're a Pierre fan, then that's a whole nother ball game. But if you're an Israel Adesanya fan and he goes southpaw, then start biting your fucking nails. Because the second he starts throwing those straight lefts down the middle, watch what I mean. He falls forward into a square stance, and his chin is just sitting there, just marinating, waiting for a gorgeous, juicy left hook to smash it to a fucking pulp. And, uh, yeah, I'm scared. I'm very scared. As someone who is a fan of Israel Adesanya, I'm a bit scared for him in this contest, because I think that shot will be there for Piera all throughout the course of this matchup. But, yes, that you know, that should be a really good fight. It should be really entertaining. I think Adesanya is going to be forced to throw a lot more than he regularly would. I also assume he's going to be throwing a lot of oblique kicks, honestly. Oblique kicks you just don't see as much of in a kickboxing contest, in a kickboxing context, but in a mixed martial arts context where you can control the hands, you know, you can... I find it it can be a little bit easier to control the hands just because you can actually grab as opposed to just putting your gloves over the top of someone else's gloves. You know, obviously you can you can palm someone's hand, but you can't actually grab them with your fingers. So in mixed martial arts, you can kind of grab people's hands and control their hands, and it puts them in position for the oblique kick to the lead leg. You know that that stomp that Izzy was landing pretty consistently on Paulo Costa, and it really jammed up Paulo's lead leg, forced him to try and check and pick up his lead leg quite a lot, which obviously means he isn't able to put power on weapons like his big left hook to the body. You know those weapons are kind of nullified by that, and I can certainly imagine that Izzy will be trying to do those kinds of things against Piera in this context in this contest quite frequently. So it's going to be very interesting. It's going to be interesting to watch him pair that oblique kick and the outside calf kick with the jab. Is he going to be able to stay off the fence? Probably. I I honestly think most of the fight is going to be contested in the center of the octagon. It is going to be very interesting, though, if Piera can back him up to the cage because he's going to have to work to get off of it. So yes, then we have Dustin Poirier versus Michael Chandler, which I haven't actually thought about that much before this very moment. You know, sometimes I think about fights a lot before getting on the microphone and actually talking about them, like with Adesanya versus Piera. I mean, I've spent so much time these past few years watching Israel Adesanya and understanding his style, and the Piera fights were part of understanding his style when I initially started watching him back when he first made it into the UFC, and... You know, you, I've been thinking about that matchup for quite an extended period of time, whereas the Dustin Poirier-Michael Chandler match, I haven't actually thought about that much up until this point. But yeah, realistically, Michael Chandler's probably going to wrestle the shit out of Dustin Poirier because Dustin's takedown defense isn't that exceptional. He is good with a wizard, but... Ah, uh, yeah, I just... I cannot envision him shrugging off the takedown every single time. He's going to get taken down at some point. The thing is, I do think... I think his takedown defense is adequate enough to shrug off a couple of takedowns, and I honestly think he has enough in him to win 
a round and a half. On our last podcast episode, we were talking just before UFC 281, which I haven't wrapped up in any way, shape, or form. I haven't talked talked about that event post-fights since. But yeah, we, we talked about in the preview, in, in that preview during that episode, how Sugar Sean O'Malley could win the fight just by virtue of winning a round and a half. You know, it could be a close contentious decision and Sean's volume could give him the victory. Lo and behold, it, it did. I know it's a contentious decision and a lot of people say it's uh, it was bullshit, you know, that shouldn't, it should have gone to yarn, whatever. But you can't deny that there were some close rounds and that Sean O'Malley really fought for those close rounds. As such... You know, my point still stands. I think Dustin Poirier can kind of do the same kind of thing because, again, the wrestling, you know, the advantage in that arena is Michael Chandler. He is, he has a really fucking nice double leg, okay? Really nice double leg. Really strong dude, obviously. Great at the high crotch. Uh, well, you don't see it that much, but you watch him flowing in back in the footage from what's it called? What was Henry Hoos Jim? They've changed names so many fucking times. It was Black Zillions, and then it turned into Hard Knocks Three Six Five. That was it. It was three Hard Knocks Three Six Five for a while there, and then it was Samford MMA. And it's just it's it's a million and one fucking different things. But you know when you would see that footage of Michael Chandler back at Hard Knocks Three Six Five back in the day. I mean you don't see as much footage coming out of that camp nowadays as you used to. For a bit there, it was just they had a lot of footage coming out, but you would watch him doing flow rolling with Kamaru Usman, and he had some nice work out of the high crotch, you know, he was quick off of the snap down into the the ankle pick, actually, yeah, there's just, there's a clip of those two flow rolling, and it's just really satisfying to watch, flow rolling footage in general is just really satisfying to watch, but Specifically those two, because, yeah, Chandler can mix it up between upper body and lower body takedown attempts and techniques very effectively. And I just, I honestly, I kind of see that being the key. The snap down into the ankle pick or the snap down into the single leg attempt. You know, the snap down into the double. I think a lot of his takedowns are going to be dependent on executing them in the middle of the cage. Because Dustin Poirier, I mean, he's from ATT. He uses the cage very effectively to defend takedowns, but if you get him in the center center of the cage, you can have some success. Sorry, I just had to pause the recording for half a second there because, I mean, as you probably would have heard in the past few minutes of talking, I mean, my voice was fucked. I needed, I needed to cough and shit for like, you know, two, three minutes there. It's a bit awkward, so I apologize for that. Yeah, I think... Dustin really solid at using the the cage to defend takedowns, but yeah, it, it's going to be dependent on Chandler getting the takedowns in the middle of the cage, and I think he can get them. But I also think Dustin Poirier, you know, if you were to bet on anyone, it should probably be Dustin Poirier, because I think on the feet he is a much more advanced striker. I think Michael Chandler is too reliant on the overhand right into the left hook or the straight right of the body into the left hook. I mean, he, there's some. he's had some great setups throughout the course of his career. He has a pretty pretty fast one-two. 
caught not not the bad people. Uh, Patriki, yeah, caught Patriki with that one too. Absolutely fucking smacked his head back in the next week with that one too. So yeah, he's he's got a really nice one too. And as we saw against Dan Hooker in his UFC debut, it was a really impressive performance from Chandler because he was throwing that jab and then he would throw the straight right to the body and Hooker was starting to bring his hands down to defend against that straight right to the body and he was moving away from the right hand because you don't want to walk into the straight right when a guy keeps consistently throwing it at you and you have a reach advantage. So it's like, you know, stay away from that rear hand. He's not going to be able to reach you, huh? And so... Hooker was getting kind of jammed up against the fence as Chandler was looking for the straight right to the body and dragging Hooker's hands downwards. And so Dan Hooker's kind of pushed up against the cage and trying to move out to his right. And it's at that point that Chandler drops, you know, changes level for the straight right to the body and then comes back up top with a left hook, drops Dan, and then is able to, you know, is able to finish him in the ensuing chaos. So yeah, he's had some really cool moments, and then obviously most recently he had that knockout over Tony Ferguson with the snap kick up the middle, but yeah, I don't know, I'm not super convinced by his, his striking, I've never been super convinced by his striking, I think it's it's decent, you know, his low kicking's decent, but yeah. Uh, I think he's got some decent timing with his one too, basically. And his jab, his jabs always look good. I mean, you know, Henry Hooft and him have really nailed out a good jab, and he's always talking about, oh yeah, the jab is so important to my game. He's always doing that shit on his social media, and then when he does use it, it can be quite effective. But then there are also times when he's just swinging overhand rights and left hooks, and you're like, well, uh, take your own advice, bro. Have you ever seen your own fucking Instagram, Bruh, What are we doing? You know, so I just envisioned Dustin Poirier with that, you know, his modified Philly shell that we talked about earlier on in the episode. He's going to be putting that up, and I think he's going to be causing Chandler to swing wide with the right hand, and he's going to be coming back with his fadeaway left straight, and it's probably going to hurt Chandler on a couple of occasions. I can see Chandler getting hurt with the, the fadeaway left hand, or the right hook, I mean, Dustin Poirier is one of my favorite right hooks, like Southpaw right hooks in mixed martial arts. Just throws it with so much power, gets right behind the lead shoulder, keeps his chin tucked, just really fundamentally sound lead hook, and he can throw it successively, not just like one and done. He can throw two or three in a row. We've seen that against Justin Gaethje. We saw the right hook's effectiveness in both the first and the second fights with Eddie Alvarez. Uh, albeit the first fight with Eddie Alvarez, yeah, it was a lot of that fadeaway uh, straight left that that gave him success. That was a lot of what. That was a lot of what troubled Eddie Alvarez in that matchup, similar to how Eddie Alvarez struggled against Conor McGregor was reaching with the straight right, and then the, the left hand came back as a counter. You know, so Poirier is really good at that kind of th- kind of a thing. But yeah, he can also use his lead hand. He can also use his right hook really effectively. And obviously, no shit, we all watched the, the Conor McGregor rematch. The dude can calf kick as well. He's from American Top Team. That's what they do. That's their fucking thing. So, yes. I think Dustin Poirier versus Michael Chandler is a very interesting matchup. I do think that Michael Chandler's got some great setups. I think, yes, watch for that right 
straight to the body into the left hook up top. That's something that you should keep in mind all throughout the course of the fight. But ultimately, I think Dustin Poirier has the advantage on the feet, is probably going to be looking to counter Michael Chandler reaching with the straight right. He's either going to be countering that by pulling away to the left and then coming back with the straight left, or he's going to be looking to hit him with the right hook over the top. And I envision Michael Chandler wrestling a lot and getting takedowns in the middle of the octagon, but I see Dustin Poirier kind of eking out a round and a half's worth of good quality striking and you know getting a finish. Not getting a finish, sorry, but getting a decision. That's what I see happening. And now we're going to talk about Frankie Edgar fighting Chris Gutierrez. I actually just stopped the recording to go rewatch his most recent fight. This is Gutierrez's most recent fight against uh, Danar Bakarel, which was a bit of a banger, honestly. It was a, was a bit of a banger. And it, it made me feel better because, I don't know, I got it in my head. I'm like, oh, you know, he's beat Andre Yule. He beat Vince Morales by leg kicks and, you know, beat Ronnie Barcelos. Oh, no, sorry, he lost to Barcelos. I'm a fucking idiot. But, yeah, you know, he's, he's beaten some decent guys throughout his tenure here in the UFC and he also, you know, beat Ray Rodriguez in LFA. You know, he's he's kind of, he's been around. I mean, he's... He's had like 20, what, 26 fights or something like that? 24 fights? Something like that. Um, So he's been kind of around the world, done it all. But, yeah, I rewatched that Baccarat fight and I was like, oh, you know, I actually see a lot here which Frankie Edgar can kind of exploit. Now, it's worth noting, I believe this is Frankie Edgar's retirement fight. Yes, What's it called? Wikipedia lists it as as his retirement fight. I've seen interviews where he's talked about it as being his retirement fight. So this is probably it. And his last fight was a UFC 268, which was yeah, that was the Madison Square Garden card back in November of last year. The same card where Alex Piero made his UFC debut. Everybody's coming back to MSG. But yes. Frankie returning to Madison Square Garden in his retirement fight. So I think that kind of warrants a very quick overview of his career. And, you know, he had he's had an exceptional career. Obviously won the lightweight championship back against BJ Penn, you know. And that, uh, that initial one was very, very contested. A lot of people were like, mm, it was kind of bullshit there. And then, you know, in the rematch, it was a lot more definitive. And then in the third fight what the fuck was BJ Penn doing in that third fight, we will never know. But yeah, he won the UFC Lightweight Championship, he defended against BJ Penn, had that incredible draw against Gray Maynard, where he was dropped, I think, like four times in a single round, and was still able to fight back. Then ended up in a split draw, and then he goes on to KO Gray in the fourth round in their their rematch. Was, oh, not their rematch, sorry, that that... that title fight was technically their rematch because they had their first fight back in 2008 which Gray won so yeah you know he's had some incredible fights with some of the most significant names in the world of like earlier mixed martial arts like late 2000s mixed martial arts you know he he beat Hermes Franca beat Sean Shirk uh, who's often people forget about Sean Shirk but they shouldn't because Sean Shirk was good even though he got, I believe, yeah, Shirk got absolutely bodied by GSP, didn't he? Uh, yeah, he got absolutely bodied back in 2005 by GSP. 
but was also really good up to that point. He was like 31 and 1 and 1. The only loss had been to Matthews, and everyone knows fucking Matthews. You know, so beat Hermes fucking Franca, Franca, who had been fighting up at like welterweight. You know, was a big boy. And that was that's kind of the story of Frankie Edgar's career, you know, beating guys who were bigger than him. Obviously, BJ Penn fought up as high as what light heavyweight up against uh, Leona Machida. You know, and Gray Maynard was never a particularly small guy as well. You know, he's fighting these guys and he's beating these guys. And a lot of these guys, he's TKOing and, and he's submitting. He submitted Matt Beach uh, back in 2009. You know, but then that kind of becomes a little bit too much. He fights Benson Henderson, loses the title, is not able to secure the title back in the rematch. Then he moved down to featherweight and, you know, had an incredible run at featherweight as well. Obviously, he comes in and he loses to Jose Aldo in in a featherweight championship fight that he got straight off the bat after moving down to featherweight, but then from there, you know, had some incredible success. Beat a very early, young in the young in the game, Charles Oliveira, and then you know beat the shit out of BJ Penn in that weird fight where BJ Penn was kind of standing on his tippy toes and was jabbing from the square stance you will literally ever see. It was weird, and I didn't like it, and I don't think anyone liked it. And then you know. He, beat up Cub Swanson, got the victory over Uriah Faber in 2015, and then had one of the sneakiest left-hook KOs you will ever see. Like You know those knockouts where you're not convinced that it actually landed, and yet it still managed, like, it still knocked the individual out, their opponent out? Yeah, that's, I think, the quintessential example of that for me is Frankie Edgar knocking out Chad Mendes, because he lands a left-hook on him that, I mean, it, it looks hard, but... When you watch it in real time, it just looks like it kind of taps him on the chin. And then Chad just folds. And this is the the same Chad Mendes who took bombs from Conor McGregor, took absolute bombs from Jose Aldo, you know. And yet he got... He just got completely bodied by that left hook from Frank Yeager. It was just the weirdest knockout conceivable. And then, you know, fights for the interim featherweight championship against Jose Aldo at UFC 200. Isn't able to get the job done in that case. Similar kind of things, you know, struggling with the lateral movement and obviously the, the inimitable takedown defense of Jose Aldo, you know, and just Aldo's ability to counter with the left hook or, or level up a stance and counter with the right hook and then swivel out the side door as Frankie, because Frankie is such a linear fighter, ultimately. So so many of his exchanges turn into him double jabbing, double jabbing and throwing combinations behind the jab and just coming in on a sort of straight line. And, you know, Aldo just worked that. So that was a, it was a bad matchup. But then, you know, he had that... has so many incredible victories, even in these more recent years. You know, got that victory over Jeremy Stevens back at UFC 205. That was the first Madison Square, Madison Square Garden UFC event. He got hurt in the second round off of, I believe, a high kick. And was still able to fight through it. I think he still won the round on most of the judges' scorecards. Just by virtue of getting Jeremy Stevens down to the ground and beating him up there. And then he has probably one of the most notorious, there's levels to this shit, performances versus Yair Rodriguez at UFC 211. And that was Rodriguez, I believe that was Yair coming off of the BJ Penn victory when he knocked out BJ. And he was coming into that that fight with Frankie. You know, he was on a, on a very impressive winning streak. He'd beaten Leonardo Morales, the Charles Rosa split decision, but then he had that that 
fight against Dan Hooker. He knocked Dan Hooker down with that uh, switch kick to the head. Did he knock him down? I can't actually remember whether he knocked him down or not, but he hit him with that beautiful jumping switch kick to the head and, you know, was just throwing crazy shit all throughout it. Had that Andre Philly head kick. Maybe that's the one I'm thinking of. I, I think I've completely mis... I've I've mistaken the Dan Hooker fight with the Andre Philly fight. Anyway, yeah. Had some great highlights in those fights. And then, you know, had that main event with Alex Caceres where they were just throwing crazy spinning shit in Utah for five rounds. Utah. At elevation. Fucking crazy. So, yeah, he was coming into that fight with Frankie. And everyone was like, oh, you know, Yair's the next generation. He throws crazy lead leg stomps and he switches stance all the time. And he, he just does the wildest shit. And then Frankie just bodied him on the ground. And it was ended uh, with a... TKO via doctor stoppage at the end of the second round, so that was very impressive. Again, like I said, the quintessential. There's levels to this shit performance. And then got KO by Brian Ortega via a mean elbow, which led to a finishing combination punctuated by a big rear hand uppercut, which was really sad, and we didn't like it at all. And that was he was meant to fight Max Holloway for the belt at that event, and he ended up getting knocked out by Brian Ortega. You hate to see it. Then he beat up Cub Swanson, you know, lost to Max Holloway in one of the more uneventful Max Holloway fights, got TKO'd by Chan Sung Jung in a fight that took place in South Korea that, I don't know, just wasn't fun to watch, you know. Had that incredible fight with Pedro Munoz, split decision. That was his last win. That was a fight that I think a lot of people said, "Uh, Pedro Munoz probably should have gotten the W there. I, I think I believed that at the time as well. And then more recently, he's had two really brutal uh, losses to Corey Sanhagen and Marlon Vera via, you know, against Cheeto back at UFC 268. It was via that front kick. It was a very well-publicized face that Frankie made as he ate the kick. It became a bit of a meme, which is a bit sad if you're a Frankie Hager fan. And then, yeah, the Corey Sanhagen fight, he got hit with a flying knee in the first 30 seconds of the bout, and that was that, unfortunately for Frankie. Yeah, if you look down that record, there's just, it's a who's who of early 2000s and mid 2000s, late 2000s, lightweight competitors. And then, you know, you go up to featherweight and he fought pretty much everyone except for, you know, Conor McGregor, basically. And, you know, Alexander Volkanovsky. Besides them, and, and obviously in his more recent fights, you know, after the Chan Song Jung fight, he fought. He went down to bantamweight, and he's fought three fights at bantamweight. And, uh, yeah, Chris Gutierrez. Is this bantamweight? Because <laughs> Gutierrez has fought at featherweight before. But, yeah, no, I believe this is going to be at bantamweight. So, yeah, he's he's gone through three different weight classes. He's He's been going successively down in weight class as opposed to up. And he finds himself in a in a matchup with Chris Gutierrez, who I think is a pretty decent matchup for him, just because Chris stands very square on, has a really brutal outside calf kick. So that's something that Frankie should definitely look to avoid getting hit with. But, you know, whilst Gutierrez, I think, showed against uh, Felipe Colares, he showed some wherewithal on the ground. Um, you know, he's not... He's not lost on the fucking, on the ground. You know, he has the rear naked choke over Ray Rodriguez. He can grapple, but he's not really a grappler at all. But he can kind of counter grapple if need be. That said, Frankie Egger's wrestling is still pretty fucking solid. 
the quintessential Frank Yeager combination is the jab or the double jab, and then he will post the lead hand on the shoulder and then pick up the lead knee, like a knee pick, basically. And it just works so effectively. I've been using it in training more recently. I, I don't know. I just, I think I just started using it one day because I, I just had the feeling like, oh, I want to try out what Frank Yeager does, you know, the, the technique that he made really famous. And it works like a charm against people who don't expect it. If you flick out the jab like two or three times beforehand and then you step in, post on the shoulder and pick up the lead leg behind it, like a small level change so that you can reach the knee, works a fucking charm. It's incredible. You can pick up single legs so easily off of it. It's weird. It and It's cool because it also makes guys a little more hesitant to put weight on their lead leg because they know that they can get their leg their their knee picked. So they're a little more conscientious of putting all that weight on it. Kind of takes some heat off of their jab if they're throwing a really like a meaty lead hand. So that's something that Frankie Egg has always done. Like I said, works quite linearly, which means that he has had some issues against guys who are pretty decent at utilizing lateral movement and guys who will like he, when Frankie is pushed up against the fence, he will he will flatten out his stance and he will move laterally quite effectively, but not in the same way that, you know, your Eddie Alvarez, your Israel Adesanya's, those kind of guys, they'll dart with straight shots as they're kind of leaning themselves off the fence. And yeah, he'll sort of move around. Yeah, it's not as fast. He's not as fast getting off the cage as some of those guys I just mentioned. And so he can kind of get caught out with the overhand right if he's moving towards the the overhand right, if he's moving out to his left, as he did against Chan Song Jung. And, you know, he can get caught with the rear-hand uppercut if his opponent is that much taller than him. And I'm just now looking up their heights. Now, Wikipedia lists Chris Gutierrez as 5 foot 8 inches, 1.73 meters tall. Frankie is quite short. He always has been quite short. He is five foot six. So there is a little bit of a deficit. It's not too bad, obviously, since he's moved down to Bantamweight. The deficits have not been as bad as they were up at Featherweight, where he was fighting some, some tall, lanky motherfuckers like Yair Rodriguez. But yeah, that, that rear hand uppercut still is something that I'm thinking about. Now, it's interesting because Gutierrez, in his most recent fight, he got that victory over uh, Baccarel via a spinning back fist. I believe it was a spinning back fist, not a spinning, not a spinning elbow, but a spinning back fist. The thing is that, I mean, it can be kind of a curse because you get a spinning back fist knockout, and it convinces you, hey, I can do that. And funnily enough, Molly McCann is fighting on this card, and she has now had two successive fights where she has found that she can land that spinning that spinning strike and it can lead to a finish. So, you know, there there are exceptions to the rule, but generally speaking, the rule is don't get obsessed with the spinning shots just because you landed one and it worked out for you that one fucking time because it is a weapon that gives up your back, okay? And if you miss that shot, then you can get put on your back, as happened with Gutierrez in that Baccarel fight, because yes, he got the spinning back fist knockout in the second round, late in the second round, but in the first round, at the end of that first frame, he threw a spinning shot, and he ended up giving up his back, 
Baccarel elevated him and ended up in a very good position and was able to rain down blows for the final half a minute of that round. Really punctuated that round, won that round thanks to those shots that he landed at the conclusion of the five minutes, the first five minutes. So yes, I'm looking at that and I'm going, ooh, Frankie Edgar, man. You know, if Chris Gutierrez is going to give up his back like that. Yeah, I know Frankie Edgar's lost a step in terms of his speed, but I'd still take him to be able, like, if, if you give him a spinning shot and you give him an opportunity to take the back, he's going to take it. And I, I just, that that's kind of what I envision happening perhaps once in this fight is Gutierrez getting put on his back just by virtue of him throwing a spinning shot and Frankie taking his back off of it. Alternatively, Frankie could be slow enough nowadays and have regressed enough at this point in his career that Chris Gutierrez throws a spinning strike and it just knocks him out dead. But, you know, we'll see. I don't know. This is an interesting fight that I wouldn't advise either way. I wouldn't, I'm not really going to put a pick on because I think it's just a very interesting fight between two guys who I think are flawed and uh and I say flawed in kind of an endearing way like Frankie Edgar has his flaws as we've just talked about but is still an incredible an incredible world beater of a fighter and has beaten incredible guys as well has made the things that he is good at and his own deficiencies sort of work for him all in this little package and Chris Gutierrez, yes, he fights really square, but he has a really nice oblique kick to the lead leg, beautiful calf kicks, and, you know, he, he can land that spinning shot as well, additionally. Yeah, has a nice jab. Because he's so square, he can really throw his hip all the way into that lead jab when he wants. Kind of stands like Alex Piera. Honestly, his stance is kind of reminiscent of that. And he levels off pretty well when he gets to the, the cage wall. As Baccarel demonstrated, go to the body against Gutierrez if you get him on the cage wall. Don't headhunt him. You know, Daniel Cormier and Dean Thomas were talking about it on the broadcast. Again, this is another second time this fucking episode where I'm going, Dean Thomas said something smart on a broadcast. But yes, if you get Chris Gutierrez onto the cage, don't just fucking headhunt him with overhand rights and bullshit like that. Look for like left hooks to the body, for example. Look for step-up body kicks, things like that. Step, maybe even like step into the pocket, grab a single collar tie, and look for a knee to the body. These kind of weapons, because you got to you got to close the distance on him, and you can't give him an opportunity to just you know avoid the shots up top and circle back into the middle of the cage, because he's very dangerous and his outside low kicking is really good. He feints that hip really diligently, really constantly, and it causes guys to pick up their lead leg, and then when they put it back down, that's when he smacks their lead leg and hits them with a calf kick and, and starts shutting that leg off. So yes, I think that that's a sensational fight. And then we have, to round out the main card, Dan Hooker is taking on Claudio Puelez. Puelez? Puelez? Yeah, I think it's Puelez. And... That's an interesting matchup. It really is an interesting matchup. Claudio's a southpaw, throws a lot of meaty rear body kicks, and but his bread butter, bread and butter is on the ground. He's coming off of two consecutive victories via knee bar, off of old beardy dudes in Chris Gritzmucker, who I love. Chris, I love, I love the Grits, uh, or the Grits is his actual nickname. But fuck, man, that dude is so goddamn inactive. 
had that Joe Lozon victory where he beat the absolute fuck out of Joe Lozon at UFC 223, and then he comes back and he gets KO'd by Alexander Hernandez in October of 2020, had that victory over Rafa Garcia, and then he comes back against Puelles and got knee-barred. And then more recently, Puelles was able to get that knee-bar on Clay Guida, which was just, oh, it was just such a great demonstration of his ability to be able to chain together submission attempts. And as always, we talk about, if you are a guard player in mixed martial arts, you better be putting up triangles, you better be putting up arm bars, you better be doing shit, okay? If you were going to play the guard... You better be, you better be converting that into consistent submission attempts. No, you don't have to commit to absolutely everything, and you don't have to actually go for every single thing you put out there. But fuck me, you need to do something, or else you're just gonna sit on the bottom for an, for a round. And if you're on the bottom for a full round in mixed martial arts, then the judges are gonna score the fucking round against you. So you see guys like, obviously, Charles Oliveira is the quintessential example, but Claudio Puelles does it really well too, as you see in that Clay Guida fight. Just this really good ability to to chain together shit. And Clay Guida shot pretty early on in the fight, like in the first 30 seconds or so, and immediately you see Claudio kind of, he kind of pulls guard. He kind of, because he defends the takedown pretty well initially, but then he ends up like looking for the guillotine gets the arm in, and then he he shifts to an omoplata attempt, gets off to the side, and then he turns that into, like, he essentially just triangles the arm, and they kind of sit there for a while, and you see for a second Puelles is threatening to, like, underhook the leg and perhaps, you know, and perhaps look to to go to the leg, and then it turns into an exchange where he ends up on the bottom. He ends up on the bottom with Clay having gotten his arm free. And this is after it's, you know, a triangle's been threatened. The omoplata's been threatened multiple times. The armbar's been threatened. You know, every single fucking thing under the sun has been threatened. And I think Clay was very, very aware of the upper body attacks and was very much not wanting to, to get submitted in that fashion. And they end up in Z guard with Puelles on the top, on the bottom, sorry, and he inverts and goes to the opposite leg, and is able to turn that into a straight knee bar. And it's just oh, so cool just to see him target the upper body for the first couple of minutes, and then get an opportunity to, you know, play Z guard, which we saw Z guard this past weekend. I think it was in the Candelario fight. I believe it was, and I was watching it, whoever it was, I think, or Hadley versus Candelario, whoever was on the bottom, I think it was Candelario on the bottom, he was playing Z-Guard, and I was just, the whole time I'm thinking to myself, don't do that, man, Z-Guard in mixed martial arts is a very dangerous guard, because, I mean, it's the kind of guard that you got to turn that into, you got to turn it into something. You got to turn it into a sweep. You got to turn it into deep half guard. You've you've got to do something with it because if you sit in Z guard for too long in mixed martial arts, you can have you can have great frames or whatever, but at some point you can get punched in the fucking head, and that's not good. That doesn't look good to a judge. So you've got to you got to start moving, and you can't really just rest on your laurels and sit in Z guard for extended periods of time. You can't be Craig Jones, basically. You know, not not that he sits in Z guard all the fucking time. He he has a million and one fucking guards you know, half-guard variations that he goes to. But just saying, you know, you can't play that kind of game. 
uh, in mixed martial arts. But uh, unless you're Claudio fucking Puelles and you're going to do shit like invert on the opposite leg and look for knee bars off of it. So yeah, he, that was his, oh, I think that's his fourth knee bar in mixed martial arts. Had one in Peru back in October 2014, you know, when he's fighting on the fucking Peruvian uh, regional scene. And then, you know, from there made it to the UFC, was on the Ultimate Fighter. And then, you know, here in the UFC, got Philippe Silva with it. Got the the grits with it, and now got Clay Guida with it. So it's very impressive, and this is quite the step up to get Dan Hooker, who stand up is so much better than pretty much all of those guys. Certainly better than guys like Jordan Levitt, you know. And what does Dan Hooker do? Stands. Uh, there seems to be a fucking. You know, we're talking about Alex Pierre stands very square. Frank Yeager stands very square. But yeah, Dan Hooker, the kind of guy who does stand relatively square. Got a solid jab. Same kind of weapons as Israel Adesanya from the orthodox stance. When when Izzy goes orthodox, except not as long and more of a... More of an emphasis on the outside low kicking, the calf kicking. Throws his jab into the outside calf kick quite frequently. Got a good left hook. Uh, and then obviously, as we're all quite aware of Dan Hooker, you if, if you're anything aware of Dan Hooker, then you know that he's going to grab the double collar tie and he's going to start mashing knees up the middle every single time he gets into that, that range. And he's damn fucking good at it. Additionally, he's got pretty damn good... Uh, what's it called? He's got pretty damn good defense on the ground. He can play the offensive game on the ground, as well as we saw against uh, Nasrat Hakparast relatively recently. Obviously, you know, he got manhandled by Islam Makashev shortly after that fight, but, I mean, everyone's sort of been manhandled by Islam Makashev, so I'm not going to really hold it against him. In his UFC debut against Ian Entwistle, we saw a bit of that takedown defense. Not takedown defense. They ended up on the bottom. And Enwistle was the kind of guy who was just like, I am going to go for your legs. I'm going to go for, you know, knee bars. And I'm going to go for the heel hook. Uh, just com- I'm just going to commit everything to it. And you see the, the finish comes pretty early on in the first round. And I believe it was the first round. Yeah, it, was a, it wasn't super early in the first round. It was kind of like midway, latter stages of the first round, actually. Just re-watching it now. And yeah, Hooker spends a lot of his time like defending that that uh, leg entanglement attempt. They're sort of in a 50-50 position, and yeah, they're in the 50-50, and Hooker's just mashing fucking elbows the whole time. Very effective with them. But yes, I just... I think this should be a, a pretty... I think Dan Hooker should be the favourite here. I believe he is, rightfully so. On the feet, has a whole lot more weapons. His outside low kicks are mental. I think in a Southpaw Orthodox matchup, it's actually like he's going to be really effective with his step-up outside low kick, you know, with his lead leg. I think he's going to be really effective with that, and I think he can also use that to set up his left hook. Uh, similar to the way that like Alexander Volkanovsky showed that off against the Korean Zombie, you know the the in that instance it was versus an orthodox guy, so it was like an inside low kick, a step up inside low kick into a left hook, 
but similar principle basically, except you turn it into an outside low kick because you're at Southpaw versus Orthodox. And yeah, just got to defend against those body kicks. If Claudio shoots, stuff the head, track the leg. I've, I feel like Puelez is going to be the smaller fighter in here. This is at lightweight, and how tall is... Oh, Puelez is a lot taller than I thought. He's he's 5'11". I didn't realize he was 5'11". Uh, Dan Hooker is quite tall, though. Yeah, he's 6' even, apparently, according to Wikipedia. This is all of Wikipedia, so it could be very wrong. Uh, I, it, it, this isn't like, you know, I'm not envisioning Dan Hooker hitting the, the double collars high, knee up the middle, you know, like I usually would. I feel like that's my prediction for every single Dan Hooker fight. Yeah, he's just going to come up the middle with the uh, with the knees, and that's that. But I do think that Dan's going to have a lot of success with his left hook, similar to the, the James Vick fight. I envision him just, you know, darting with the straight right and then kind of stepping into left hooks and, and finding success there. And I think Puelas is going to really struggle to keep Dan down. Get him down in the first place, honestly, because I think Dan's takedown defense is really solid. Puelas is probably going to go for the back body lock. Honestly, I think a lot of his takedowns are going to emanate from the back body lock. And it's going to be up to Dan to defend hooks. And I think he's he's damn good enough to use the cage and turn back into Puelas, push off, and then in the middle of the cage, avoid those body kicks, avoid the hands, the the overhand left of Puelas, and you know, and punish uh, and punish him at distance. So yeah, I think that should be a Dan Hooker win. You got like Brad Riddell versus Hanano Moicano, which is a great fight. Hanano Moicano is kind of the prototypical ATT fighter at this point. He's been fighting at ATT. I still think he fights at ATT. I might be wrong. He might have changed teams. No, no. According to Wikipedia, it's still accurate. But yeah, kind of the quintessential guy. Again, calf kicks a lot. Really nice jab. Uh, combination works solid. You know, has had some not fun times against guys like Rafael Fazeev. Uh, got tuned up by, you know, Dos Andros RDA at UFC 272 earlier this year. That was a five-round fight for some reason. Oh, yeah, RDA was meant to fight uh, Rafael Fazeev. Uh, and that was meant to be a five-round fight. And then when Vaziev couldn't make the fight, they kept it as a five-round bout. And you know, and also he fought. I didn't. I forgot that he fought Alexander Hernandez like two weeks before that fight with RDA. I didn't realize it was that short. I thought there was a much bigger gap between those fights. That is crazy. Yes, but Hernando Moicano, honestly, very underrated at this point. You know, had some some losses, like he lost to Jose Aldo, they had a really close competitive first round, which was pretty tentative from both guys, but then Jose just started flurrying at the beginning of the second round and got the finish, I think it was a very legitimate finish, but I think it was also slightly preemptive, I'm not saying that Moicano could have worked his way back into that fight, just saying, you know, that, and then got knocked out with that, you know, that overhand right by Chan Song Jung, uh, back in 2019, June of 2019, then he moved up to lightweight, and since then, I think he's kind of, he's had some ups and downs, obviously, the loss to RDA, that that came in at a short notice, 160-pound fight, like, and that was five rounds, so, I think that was his first, I, I'm looking at his record, that's the first time he'd ever gone five rounds in his entire career, that's fucking nuts, on short notice, on two weeks notice, you know, after having already fought against Alexander Hernandez at UFC 271, like, that's fucking absurd, it wasn't two weeks, it was like three weeks, but still, fuck man, but you know, 
still, even though he lost to Hafei Alfazeev as well, had that win over Demir Hadjovic, which was hilarious because, you know, Hanato after the fight, was getting on the mic going, oh, you know, I wish I could have fought longer. And Hadjovic is like, well, then why'd you submit me? It was really fucking weird. Because, yeah, the fight was like 44 seconds long. And he also beat Jai Herbert and, uh, well, as we mentioned, beat Alexander Hernandez as well. And the Hernandez win was very impressive, in my opinion, my humble opinion. So, yeah, Moicano's very underrated. Brad Riddell looks really good. I know, I know we shouldn't go off the fucking look test or anything, but I think Brad Riddell looks really, like, his strength and conditioning's been fucking solid, honestly. Uh, yeah. So, and Brad Riddell, very left-hook-oriented, solid takedowns. For a guy from New Zealand, you I don't know, you, there are still a lot of people who believe Oceana guys just can't be great wrestlers because, oh, they never wrestled when they were kids. You know, they didn't wrestle in high school, but they can never be good wrestlers. And it's like, bruh, you ever seen some of these motherfuckers play rugby? Shit gets intense. But yes, I think... Honestly, uh, yeah, it's what I envision happening for most of the fight. I, I envision Brad's probably going to try and take down Hanato. Hanato's going to get backed up to the fence. He's going to be using a uh, wizard on one side and he's going to be underhooking real deep on the other side and trying to drag Brad back up his body. And I just think Brad's going to kind of grind things out along the fence, both both in terms of the wrestling and also in terms of the striking. I think he's going to push Hanato, Hanato's back to the cage. That's the best way to nullify Hanato's really good jab. And he's going to be looking for that outside low kick. He's going to be looking for that step up inside low kick into the overhand right that he really loves. Yeah, he, he also loves his straight right to the body. Does something, he gets hit a bit too much for my liking, which is, you know, part of the reason that he's had some of the, you know, his more recent issues. Uh, obviously, you know, he, I think he was down on the scorecards against Fazeev before the finish, and that was one of the best fights of last year. And then against Jalen Turner, he got hurt pretty early, and then uh, got submitted, got guillotined pretty quick by uh, by Mr. Mister Turner. So, you know, he he's had a less than fortunate past 12 months, but, you know, prior to that, he had some pretty impressive wins, you know, the Drew Dober win was really impressive, again, got caught a bit too much, but Drew Dober is a mean, mean southpaw with a mean left body and high kick, and throws that straight left with, oh man, he's got crazy power, so that that's still a very impressive win for my money, you know, so... I think this is a really, I think this is a decent matchup for Brad Riddell to get him back back into the win column. I hope he can pick up the win because I like Brad Riddell. So there's that. Uh, Dominic Reyes is back finally. He's taken on Ryan Spann. Dominic Reyes has been out ever since that Yuri Prohaska loss a little while ago, actually. That was in May of last year. Yeah, it was a bad spinning back elbow loss. You know, prior to that, he got TKO'd by Jan Blachowicz, primarily due to the body shots, that, that beautiful step-up um, left body kick that Jan will throw off of the 1-2, uh, you know, led to a really quite significant bruise on Dominic Reyes's ribs, eventually, you know, culminated in a finish, and then prior to that, uh, Dominic Reyes, yeah, he lost his uh, championship fight versus John Jones at UFC 247 in a fight that I think he probably should have won, and I think a lot of people would agree with me. 
But yeah, prior to that, he was having a lot of success. Obviously, he had that knockout of Chris Wyman pretty early on in their fight, and then had that fight with Vulcan Uzdemir, which oh, I remember a lot of people saying, oh, you know, I don't think Reyes should have won that. It was a split decision, actually. Uh, but prior to that, he also had, you know, that OSP fight that he was dominating, and then he basically knocked OSP out at the final second. That was back in 2018. Uh, it wasn't considered a knockout, wasn't called off, went to decision, and rightfully so, Dominic Reyes got the unanimous decision, you know, got the TKO over Jared Kanania back in 2018. That was beautiful, again, using the rear hand uppercut. Uh, yes, it's just been really good from the get-go. I just remember, you know, first time I saw him was his UFC debut back in 2017 versus Joaquin Christensen. He looked fast. He looked like a mean, mean southpaw in that fight. And ever since then, he's kind of demonstrated that as being the truth. You know, got overwhelmed by volume versus Yuri Prohaska. But, you know, otherwise is is still a very, very, or should be a really, really good fighter. We'll see how he comes into this fight. And I think Ryan Spann's a very winnable fight. I don't think Ryan Spann's stand-up is anywhere near the level of Dominic Reyes, if Dominic Reyes is on his game, but yeah, we'll see, I, I don't know, there are too many, there are too many question marks about that fight, given all the time off for Reyes, and, and how he's lost his most recent fights, I thought he looked really good against Prohaska, though, in stretches, uh, you know, he was o overwhelmed by the incredible volume that Prohaska put out, but he was also putting out his own volume in response to Prohaska's pressure, so, you know, I don't think he's going to see that same pressure from Ryan's ban. So we might see a, a lot more calculated Dominic Reyes and a guy who can kind of breathe and, and work in his left his left kicks. So yes, I'm very excited for that one as well. And he's got a really nice right hook as well off of that lead side. Molly McCann's back against Aaron Blanchfield. That should be fun. I'm actually really liking Molly McCann. I thought her last two fights were really fun. She's not a meme fighter to me. She's, you know, an actual damn solid uh competitor in there. She's very fun to watch. Andre Petrovsky is taking on Wellington Sherman. That should be fun. Matt Favola is taking on Altman Azatar, who was... Has he actually had a fight since... Yeah, no, no. He he was meant to fight uh, Matt Favola. This fight was initially made for UFC 257 back in 2021, January of 2021. And then he got booted off that card. That was the, the McGregor-Poirier card the rematch, and he got booted off because they tried to, I think they tried to sneak someone in, um, it was basically a breach of COVID-19 safety protocols, and yeah, he got released from his contract, but then, you know, like a month later, they, they gave him a second chance or whatever, so he's been back in the USC for a while, but uh, he hasn't actually fought, so now he, he gets his long-awaited fight with Matt Favola, and it's on the UFC Fight Pass prelims, the headlining the UFC Fight Pass prelims, how delightful, but yeah, it should actually be quite a banger, because I really love Matt Favola, and I think Azatar is really good, and it was kind of disappointing that he got cut, even though he kind of deserved to with the dumb shit that he pulled, and yeah, I'm just excited to see him back, Carolina Colbert, just taking Silvana, Gomez, Juarez, I cannot see that going well for Carolina, Michael Trasano's taking on Choi Sung-Woo. Yeah, Julio Arce's taking on Montel Jackson. That should be fun. And Carlos Ulberg is taking on Nikolai Nagamurano, who's, again, name I've completely butchered. And I think Nikolai... Sh I think he is an underdog. At least he is here in Australia. He's like $2.08 to win versus Carlos, who is $1.80-something. 
And honestly, if you're a betting man, I like that line for Nikolai Nagarameno. So, you know, take that for what it is. Anyway, holy shit, I've spoken for an hour and 43 minutes. There is not a chance any of you have made it this long. If you have, congratulations. I don't know why you listen to me ramble as long as you have. Anyway, I'm going to let you guys go. Uh, Will I get back here next week? Who fucking knows at this point? I'm incredibly inconsistent about this podcasting. Will I actually make a video for the main YouTube channel? Perhaps. Uh, I am actually writing a video on Nathaniel Wood and his trips right now because I loved his trips, both in the Charles Rosa and the Charles Jordan fights, and I really want to talk about them. Yes. So, might do something on that. I might also do... I haven't done a boxing video before. I've done a Muay Thai video, the Rod Tang one. I've obviously done a bunch of mixed martial arts ones, as you're all aware. But I am kind of thinking about perhaps talking about Justice Honey who is a heavyweight Australian boxing prospect. And he just had a win on the weekend, and it was really impressive because he was kind of pushed and tested in the clinch, or not in the clinch, in the pocket, where he he usually fights a much more conscientious outside game and works his right hand from distance. But this time around, his head movement was just exceptional and needed to be because it was being fought in very close range, and he got hurt early on in the fight in close range. So... Yeah, I kind of want to write a video about him because I just I was really impressed by some of the things that he was doing. I don't think he'd necessarily beat a Tyson Fury, for example, but I think he would give some issues to some of the major names in heavyweight boxing worldwide. And I just think I kind of want to get in on the ground floor. I mean, it's not really the ground floor anymore because he does have quite a bit of hype about him here in Australasia. You know, his his pay-per-views here in Australia do get quite a bit of interest from the local sports media. But yeah, before he makes it to the international scene and he starts fighting the real top quality heavyweights worldwide, I think uh, it would be useful to have a look at him and have a look at his style and see what makes him tick. Yeah, so that that's an idea. But yes, I'm, I'm kind of committed to this Nathaniel Wood trip video because inside and outside trips are becoming a more fundamental part of the game. We're seeing them with guys like Piotr Jan as well. Goa Romero has been doing them for years, as we saw against Chris Wyman, um, that very well-publicized and uh, shared-about clip of him tripping Wyman. And I've been watching a lot of the B-team stuff on YouTube recently, and you see they did... Craig Jones put up on his his Instagram a compilation of B-team guys hitting some really nice trips. So I think it's actually becoming a much more fundamental part of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Like the Brazilian jiu-jitsu no-gi meta is incorporating trips a lot more frequently into the game. And not just like over-under inside trips, but we're talking like you know, trips from the snap down, or we're talking like outside trips from, you know, like a single collar tie, which, you know, again, like I said, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has stolen a lot of its takedowns from Judo, and, you know, has started more recently to incorporate things like single legs and double legs from wrestling, as stand-up has become a more prominent part of the game, and guys aren't pulling guard as frequently, but you're also now starting to see this development in trips. And yeah, like I said, not just trips from over-under or double-under hooks, you know, when you're really close to your opponents, but also from a little further away. There's a great clip in that compilation that Craig Jones shared of Nicky Rodriguez getting the snap down and then getting a trip from the snap down and then immediately going into a dance off of it. And it is just 
ridiculously slick. And yeah, I just want to talk about that. And I want to talk about the way that Nathaniel Wood uses them and how he's been so successful with them and why he's able to make them work in his mixed martial arts game and how they complement his whole grappling game. So yes, that should be a very fun video. Anyway, I'm going to stop rambling. It's been an hour and 47 minutes now. Wish you a good week. Hope UFC 281 slip-slop slaps. I'll catch you on the flip side. Peace.